I want to say I'm going to take uh, my brother Elder uh, Jose's uh, word to heart. I'm, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be sharing my story, uh, my story of addiction and recovery and the grace of God uh, over at Esperanza Health Center. Uh, Dr. Brian Hollinger and I are going to tag team it over there tomorrow morning. Looking forward to being with you. But I really appreciate your prayers. I find whenever I share something, the, the, the hardest things, the darkest things in my story, I always struggle with sharer's remorse. Um, but those are the things that highlight and spotlight the grace of God. So I appreciate your prayers. Um, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we could be here today. This is your grace. It's a miracle that we're all here. You have carried us through this week. You've opened doors that no one could close, and you've closed doors that no one could open. And here we are by your grace today. Show us Jesus. Uh, Jesus, be lifted up um, above all the madness uh, and chaos and crisis that may be going on in our lives and all around us in our city and our world, our, our country. Uh, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Crucified for sinners and raised to give us life. And that will be more than enough for us. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that receive. Um, that you'd accomplish your purpose. The reason you brought each one of us here today, Lord. That you would accomplish that. For your glory and for our good before the eyes of a watching world, in Jesus' name, amen. Shell and I don't get to the theater very much, but we took in a play at the Walnut Street Theater last month. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Thank you, Brian and Christy. It reminded me that unless you go to the theater regularly, you may not be used to thinking of stories in terms of acts, but most of the stories you read and the TV shows or the movies that you watch, they're, they're presented in a three-act format. In Act One, we're introduced to the characters and their setting, things are normal, but then a crisis, a danger or villain or problem is played out before us until it just seems insurmountable. When the first act ends, the audience looks at each other with raised eyebrows, a look that says, how are they going to get out of that mess? In act two, the plot thickens. Perhaps the hero is making her way toward a solution, and then wham, there's a twist that makes things even worse. Perhaps there are several twists. What's she going to do? Things have gone from bad to worse. Then the curtain closes on Act 2, or on TV, the commercials run. In Act 3, everything starts building to a climax. The final battle, uh, the showdown in the courtroom, the big game, and then it's over. The story is resolved, and the loose ends are tied up. The curtain comes down, you close the book, or the credits run, and you look at your friend with a satisfied smile, and you say, that was pretty good. After a week away, we are returning to our sermon series on lessons from Jacob's journey with God that we're calling a disciple's life, the blessing and the limp. Uh, we're moving into the part of Jacob's story where the limp part of his life and ours 
uh, is going to be coming into focus. Over the next month, we will be moving into the heart and soul of Jacob's story played out in a three-act drama. Now, I want to take a moment before going any farther to thank some people who are helping me preach this Jacob series. Uh, Before we started this series, I had become uh, concerned that my preaching was just not connecting very well with our youth and young adults, and I felt I needed help to make that connection better. So, God put it on my heart to ask some of the teenagers and young adults if they would give me feedback about these sermons to help me be a better preacher. So I put together a a simple half sheet with the heading, Help Pastor John Preach Better. (laughs) You may have seen those floating around, and some of you wanted one, but you're not getting one. (laughs) You have to be a youth or young adult, right? So I just... (laughs) So I passed it out to some of the teens, some of the young adults, and asked if they would be willing to use it to give me their input, and some of them have. And... um, I have no doubt that it really is helping me in my preaching. So I can't thank, of you, thank all of you by name because the forums are anonymous. But I do want to thank those of you who have given me your feedback. It really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. And I've, I've, I'll try not to stalk you too much over the next month and a half, but I would love it if you could keep giving me your input. I've got plenty of sheets up here for youth and young adults. I'll be carding you if you come up, right? Okay. So today, we step into the first act of a classic three-act story that stretches through Genesis 32 and 33. So let's refresh the backstory. Jacob, grandson of Abraham, cheated his older twin brother Esau out of the great blessing of God. A blessing, by the way, that God would have given him for free without all the shenanigans. Well, Esau, he was angry. He was angry enough to kill Jacob. So Jacob went into exile for 20 years. Now he's coming home, but he has to face Esau. This story is useful to us because all of us, let's be honest, we regularly have our own dramas playing out in three acts. Am I right? We do drama, right? Total drama. We know what that's like. For example, a man moves his family to Philadelphia for a new job, but the economy soon flattens his company and he loses his job. His wife had warned him that things looked precarious, but he wouldn't listen. Now what's he going to do? He's in Act 1. Or the woman who discovers her little boy has Down syndrome. And she just can't imagine what the future will be like. She keeps wondering if somehow it's her fault. She's in Act 1. Or consider the student who has just started college and is now just overwhelmed by the workload. He realizes how little he prayed about his decision and wonders if he's made a terrible mistake. He's in Act 1. A fair number of you may be in Act 1 of a drama in your life right now. Something has come up that is frightening, unnerving, maybe something you never saw coming, and you wonder what the future holds. Jacob's story will have something to say to you if you listen closely over the next few sermons. 
Act 1 is today's message, Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21. It looks okay at the beginning, but then things take a bad, ominous turn. Act 2, which we'll see in the next two sermons, is the unexpected twist when things go from bad to worse. Jacob is ambushed in the night by a mysterious man, and he has to fight for his life. Didn't see that coming. Act 3 is what happens when the two brothers finally meet in the sermon after that. So here's what I want you to consider for today. When you're living in a crisis of Act 1, with no idea what the ending of your story will be like, is there anything you can do that will make any difference? Is there anything you can do that will make any difference? Today's message is entitled, Praying Mercies for a Rough Road Ahead. Praying mercies for a rough road ahead. That's what Jacob is facing. So let's read our text for Act 1 today. Genesis 32, uh, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, You who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said... I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Verse 13, he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. Verse 19, he also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, 
you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, does he sound like us? (laughs) Be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Here's the first takeaway for us today as Act 1 takes a, a dark turn. Even if you're facing a crisis of your own making, God is by your side. Even if you're facing a crisis of your own making, God is by your side. As you read the text, you realize that Jacob's problem wasn't just that Esau was coming with an army of 400. Is that a welcoming committee? No, that's an army. (laughs) The real problem is Jacob knew Esau had a good reason to hate him and want him dead. Jacob was reaping what he had sown 20 years earlier. I think it's hard enough to cope and pray when you feel like you're the innocent victim of a crisis. But when you know that the crisis you're facing is at least partly, if not mostly, your own doing, it's hard to know just what you can trust God to do for you. I mean, maybe God wants you to get clobbered, to teach you a lesson. I've felt that way. But here's a surprising lesson we learn from this passage. There are some ways in which God plays favorites. There are some ways in which God plays favorites. Now, because playing favorites has such negative connotations and applications in our society, let me offer a word of clarification. When God plays favorites, it's called grace. When God plays favorites, it's called grace. God's favorites are those who have trusted his son, Jesus Christ, to save them through no merit of their own. And that's why the Father sent the Son, so that you and I might have our sins forgiven, that we might be reconciled to the Father and be counted as his own sons and daughters, his favorites by grace alone. In this story... What Jacob does not seem to understand is that God will not treat him as his deeds deserve, but will rather treat him as a favored son. That is called grace. Jacob does not realize that God is on his side. And that means that in the end, when the curtain falls on Act 3, you'll be smiling. God's favor means there will be a blessed ending for his beloved sons and daughters, even if you cannot see it or feel it now in any way. Angels are around a lot more than we realize, as we see in verse 1. The angels met Jacob on the way. I think they're always around. But since we don't see them, nor understand them very well, we don't know what to do with them, we don't really factor them into our lives very much, do we? But know this. God's angels camp near you, just as they camped near Jacob. Psalm 91 says, If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. 
No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now that promise was claimed by Jesus and fulfilled by Jesus when he trusted his heavenly father during his temptations in the wilderness at the start of his earthly ministry. So you see the point, this promise becomes yours. This is Jesus preaching to you in Psalm 91. This promise becomes yours by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ by faith. God's angels have your back. And this is because the Father plays favorites. And we, now we know who his favorites are, don't we? It's all his kids. It's all his kids, starting with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and all the sons and daughters he brings into the Father's glory through his magnificent salvation at the cross, purchased at the price of his own blood. So you who know Jesus, you who trust in Christ, through no merit of your own, you are the Father's favorites. That's called grace. God is by your side. Here's the other takeaway for us today in our Act One drama. When your future is frightening, nothing you do matters as much as praying well. When your future is frightening, nothing you do matters as much as praying well. Let's unpack that. Into this situation comes the Act One crisis. Esau was coming to meet Jacob, and he had an army of 400 men with him. Jacob was terrified, so he did three things. You'd probably do some things too, so would I. First, he divided the people who were with him into two groups. That was so at least half the people could escape if they were attacked. Second, he prayed. And finally, he sent waves of gifts ahead of him to pacify Esau before they met. So let's be honest. You and I do the same kinds of things when we're in the crisis of an act one kind of situation. We take every precaution, and make every plan that we can think of. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, unless you think that what you do will deliver you. That's a big red flag. In Jacob's case, two of the precautions he took proved to be completely unnecessary. One, however, his decision to engage in desperate prayer changed the outcome of the whole story. The lesson is clear. When your future is frightening, nothing you do matters so much as desperate prayer. Verses 9 through 12 contain the greatest prayer in the book of Genesis. And who prays it? Adam? Noah? Abraham? Joseph? Nope. Jacob. Jacob? Are you kidding? This prayer is uttered by the guy who is more like you and me than anyone else in this book, Jacob. Three steps forward, two steps back, Jacob. Jacob, the slick and sly guy. Leave it to me, Jacob. He prays one of the great prayers of the Bible. It often takes a crisis to get us to sit down and concentrate on praying, doesn't it? 
I read a survey one time that nearly half of all pastors do not regularly sit down for a dedicated time of prayer. They pray on the run. Short prayers throughout the day, the survey said. I do that. I can only assume that most of us do the same, except when we're afraid. Things change when we're threatened, we're afraid. When we're afraid, we sit down, close the door, don't disturb me, maybe even kneel if you can, and we pray. We pray hard, we pray desperately, we pour out our heart. You see, fear is often the front door to the school of prayer. Fear is often the front door to the school of prayer. Like Jacob, we stop and think soberly as we pray. Because we've come to the end of ourselves and our great plans. And so we start to think about God. And we think about who we're speaking to. Where we stand with him. What he's done for us. What he's said that we could lay hold of. We sort out what we really want and really need for God to do. What makes a a prayer great? What does it mean to pray well? Frederick Buchner has a few thoughts on this as he begins his novel entitled On the Road with the Archangel. Here's what he writes in the angel's voice. I am Raphael, one of the seven archangels who pass in and out of the presence of the Holy One. Blessed be he. I bring him the prayers of all who pray and those who don't even know that they're praying. Some prayers I hold out as far from me as my arm will reach, the way a woman holds a dead mouse by the tail when she removes it from the kitchen. Some, like flowers, are almost too beautiful to touch, and others so aflame that I'd be afraid of their setting me on fire if I weren't already more like fire than I am like anything else. There are prayers of such power that you might almost say they carry me rather than the other way around the way a bird with outstretched wings is carried higher and higher on the back of the wind. There are prayers so apologetic and shame-faced and half-hearted that they all but melt away in my grasp like sad little flakes of snow. Some prayers are very boring. I know I've prayed some very boring prayers. How about you? Ever prayed any boring prayers? I would say that Jacob did not pray a boring prayer here. I would say he prayed a flaming prayer. Not because it was long and complex and made up of flowery, lofty language, but because it came from a God-oriented heart that felt the fire coming its way. And his prayer, his prayer carried Jacob's fear into the heart of the Father's grace. You can pray well the same way Jacob did. We're the same kind of people. Because praying well is not about who you are. It's about who God is. So don't get this twisted. It's really easy to get this twisted. Don't put the focus on whether you are praying well enough. Put the focus on the God who is so well worth praying to. Are you with me? Amen? So how did Jacob pray well? And how can you and I pray well? What do we see in this prayer as he pours out his heart? Well, first, talk to the Lord as the covenant-keeping God. 
Talk to the Lord as the covenant-keeping God. Do you see how Jacob begins his prayer in verse 9? O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. I don't think Jacob's point is simply that he's praying to the same God as his forefathers. He is praying to the God who made an everlasting covenant, who entered into a covenantal relationship with his grandfather and with his father before him and now with him too. So when you pray, start by recognizing who God is, who you're talking to. Talk to God about who he is, what he's promised, what he's done for you, what he's done for others in the past, his faithfulness. Dwell on that, the faithfulness of God, until your faith finds its footing in the God of all grace who keeps all his promises. He is faithful. Next, humble yourself in view of God's grace and in view of God's greatness. Humble yourself. I think the risky part of Jacob's prayer is found in verse 10. Risky because you can't just talk a humble game with God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever talked a humble game with God? He can see right through us. He knows our hearts. (laughs) And I don't know, it's, it's never easy for me to get to a sincere, I am unworthy without some qualifiers on it, you know. I am unworthy, says Jacob. He prays, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I'm unworthy. To get ourselves down to size, we need to take enough time to truly consider the Lord's grace, the Lord's greatness, and our own unworthiness, so that we get God right-sized. It's really about that. We have to get God right-sized in our eyes. And this isn't groveling. This is facing the truth. This is living in the truth. So think of where you were. Think of what you were when God found you. When he came to you, he saved you. What has Jesus done for you in very practical, detailed terms? What has Jesus done for you? Did you deserve what God gave you? Were you worthy of it? Sort all that out before God in prayer. Consider the words of Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever and whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You see that God is committed to revive you as you humble yourself before his grace. Finally, based on his promises that are scattered throughout his word, throughout the history of salvation, ask God to save you from whatever is confronting you. Keep it simple. Isn't that what Jacob does in verse 11? Save me! Can't get more basic than that. Save me, Lord! In a devotional I read earlier this month, in Jack Miller's Saving Grace, I was reminded of something that Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said that to understand God's grace, you should picture yourself as a caterpillar that's trying to crawl out from a ring of fire. Grace is when someone picks you up and carries you over the fire. You can't save yourself. Your only hope is help from above. To get grace, you have to start by admitting you are caught in a ring of fire. 
with no hope of saving yourself. You have to know that you have a desperate need and that only Jesus Christ has the power to pick you up and save you. That is what prayer is all about. In prayer we say, I have nothing, no strength, no wisdom, no righteousness, but I have a God who has given me the gospel. And in that gospel, he promises it all for the asking. Draw near to Jesus with boldness. Become a beggar and approach the throne of grace to receive grace and find mercy to help you in your time of need. What makes Jacob's prayer so great is the way he ties his plea for God's deliverance in verse 11, save me, to God's own promises to make from him a great nation in verse 12. You said, Lord, that you would make me prosper and make my descendants like the sand of the sea. Jacob is not actually praying for his own life at that point, at least not primarily. He's praying for the lives of his children. If Esau should attack and kill them, then God's promise of a great nation would die with them. Jacob believes in a big salvation. When we pray Desperately well, we search our memories, our experiences, and our Bibles for the promises of God. And we, we just hammer our prayers deep down into those promises as they are all fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. The Bible says, however many are the promises of God, they are all yes and amen in Christ for you. And we believe in a big salvation too, don't we? Amen. So what was it that the angel Raphael said at the start of Buchner's novel? He said, there are prayers of such power that you might almost say they carry me rather than the other way around. Flaming prayers. So go back. Remember our three frightened friends in the first act of their dramas at the beginning of this message? How might they pray desperately well? Flaming prayers. The man who moved to Philadelphia only to lose his job. He might pray, Lord, we just moved here and now my job is gone. You tell me not to be afraid that you care for me more than for the sparrows. You tell me to cast all my cares on you because you care for me. You promise not to withhold any good thing from those who love you. So Jesus, one way or another, in a way that shows how great you are, please take care of my family. The mother with the child who has Down syndrome. She might pray, Heavenly Father, I know you love my little one more than I do. And this is in your hands. Jesus invited little children to come and be blessed. And I know he will bless my child too. Jesus promised that my child is guarded by angels who always see you and my baby at the same time. But I'm afraid for the future. How can I be a mother to a child with these needs? Father, teach me how to parent and love this child and give me joy and peace and grace for this journey. The overwhelmed student, he might pray, Lord Jesus, I was so sure you opened the door for me to be in school here, but now I'm not at all sure I can do this. You promised that if anyone lacks wisdom, we can ask for it and you'll give it. You promised to give me strength. You give your strength to the weak. 
You promise that if I trust in you with all my heart, you will direct my steps. Rescue me, Lord Jesus. Lead me, Lord Jesus. Whether you want me here or somewhere else, I want to know you and I want to serve you and I will put all my hope in you. And I think we can add our own frightened selves in the first act crisis of our own dramas, can't we? Perhaps things seem to be taking a bad turn in your life. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, writes this. When confronted with suffering that won't go away, or with even a minor problem, we instinctively focus on what is missing, not on the master's hand. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. Did you catch that? Did you catch that for yourself, for your your own situation? Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. In the middle, all you can see is what has turned bad, what has been taken from you, what seems irredeemable and broken and frightening. You feel that you've lost everything that matters, and you don't believe that God will do anything now through you or through your circumstances. Your spouse has left, your kids are a mess, your body is failing, your job is in jeopardy. How can anything good ever come out of such pain and hardship? Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. That's where we are with Jacob. Act one has come to a close and questions still remain. The danger still marches toward you as you wait in the dark. And there are more unsettling twists in the story yet ahead. But already, you see, the direction of the story has been set. Not by all the precautions we take and the great plans we put in motion, no. But because we have a great covenant-keeping God to whom we can pour out our hearts with a strong hope in what he can do. Because of what he has already done for our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. May you find that middle of the story kind of grace that God has prepared for you right where you are today. His grace will prove to be sufficient for you right there. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's take a few minutes as we, uh, we often do to have a time of prayer. We don't want to just rush right out We need to reflect on what we've heard from the Word of God and what it means in our own lives, in our families. So, I just want to invite you into a time of prayer. What difficult drama is playing out in your life, in your family, right now? Just invite you to pour out your heart to this covenant-keeping, faithful God. I'll ask the prayer team, if you'll please come up. They'll be right up front here. If you'd like somebody to pray with you about any of that, that crisis that you're in, that that drama in your life or your family, come on up to the front prayer team. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm just going to give you some, some music to pray by. Let's just spend a little time in quietness and prayer and pouring out your heart. If it needs to be loud, it's okay to be loud too in prayer. So let's just, let's just meet with God. If you are one
to cry out to him and you'll find no curtain there no reason left for fear there's perfect freedom here to weep every come lift up your sorrow Offer your pain. Come make a sacrifice of all your share there in your wilderness. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to worship him. 